Church family, I invite you to open up in God's word to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 57 is our passage for today. The title of our message is, When Glory Seems Deserved. When Glory Seems Deserved. Genesis chapter 41. Let's enjoy the word of God. This is his word. Let's enjoy hearing him speak to us. As we read, you follow along as I read, this is the word of God. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he was about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. 
that food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to the servants, can we find a man like this and whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you help us to understand your word today, teach us your truths, and help, them, help us to apply them to our lives for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When glory seems deserved. There's a scene in a movie where um, there's a, a, a nobody wannabe wrestler, and he's trying to convince another nobody into joining him to be on his tag team wrestle, wrestling team. The, the other guy doesn't want to join him, and so the wannabe wrestler, who's, they're both nobodies, but one is a wannabe wrestler, he has to try to convince this other guy to join him to be a part of his team. And, he, and, and here's his little speech to convince the guy to join his tag team wrestling extravaganza. He, he says something like this. He says, aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face? I am. Don't you want a little taste of the glory? See what it tastes like. Now, he says it much funnier than I just did, but I'm not going to try to uh, impress you with my horrible ability to impersonate other people. But he says, don't you want a little taste of the glory? See what it tastes like. Aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face? I know, church, it's not very spiritual for me to think this, but that movie scene came to mind as I thought about Genesis chapter 41. I thought about that wannabe wrestler feeling like dirt had been kicked in his face and saying, don't you want a little taste of the glory. 
You see, Joseph seems to have had dirt kicked in his face for the last 13 years of his life. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Then, even though he did everything right as a slave, he was falsely accused, something he didn't do, and he gets thrown into prison. And even though he did everything right when he was in prison, he ends up being forgotten by the only person who really had an opportunity to work to get him out of prison. And so when an opportunity for a little recognition, a little respect, a little glory came his way, I can only imagine that there could have been a temptation to chase after it. There could have been a little temptation to go after that glory and just run with it and enjoy it for a little while. Have you ever been there? Maybe things haven't been going your way. Maybe you feel like you've been treated unfairly. And then there's an opportunity. An opportunity comes about for you to enjoy some well-earned respect, some well-earned recognition, some well-earned praise. How do you respond? What's the right way to respond when an opportunity for exaltation presents itself? What should we do when glory comes our way and that glory seems to be at least a little deserved on our part? Church, our greatest desire must always be for God to receive all the glory. I believe Genesis 41 teaches us this, church. When earthly exaltation comes our way, God's glory must be our greatest desire. When earthly exaltation, that means to to be lifted up is what that word exalt means. When earthly praise, the earthly opportunity for prominence and fame comes our way, God's glory must be our greatest desire. We've journeyed with Joseph for several chapters now in Genesis. We've seen him walk through a roller coaster of circumstances as he's gone from favorite son to object of hate to slave to top slave to prisoner to top prisoner to forgotten prisoner. I mean, it's been all over the place. But we've seen that God has been with him through it all. When we get to chapter 41, we see that God has had a plan through it all. In chapter 41, Joseph goes from forgotten prisoner. I mean, think about it from forgotten prisoner to standing face to face with the king of Egypt, earning the respect of the king and being given a position of royalty by the king, which he then uses to enact a plan of rescue to rescue the entire nation. And even other nations around. In other words, we see Joseph go from nothing to something, at least in the eyes of the world. We, we see him go from bottom shelf to top shelf. We see him go from rags to riches. We can say that in chapter 41, Joseph experiences some earthly exaltation. But the incredible thing is that in a season of his life where he experiences exaltation, he seems to keep God at the center of the attention. When the spotlight gets put on Joseph church, we see Joseph turn the spotlight on God. And in doing so, Joseph, I believe, sets a great example for all of us of how we should strive to give God the glory, even when the world might say, hey, it's your turn to shine. You've waited long enough. Enjoy the fame. You deserve the glory. I want to share with you six ways we can keep God's glory as our greatest desire in moments where earthly exaltation comes our way in moments where it would be easy to take the glory for ourselves. But I want you to remember as we walk through this, that even though Joseph is a great example to us in this passage, and we have seen him serve as a good example uh, in previous passages, God's word is doing more than giving us an example to follow. It's pointing us to a savior to believe in and a king to bow down to church. 
And so some of these ways of making sure we give God the glory will come from Joseph's example. But some will come as we have our gaze shifted to God's bigger plan and to a better Joseph. Truth number one is this. When it seems like we deserve the glory, we glorify God when we quickly give God the credit. Church, we must quickly give God the credit. At the end of chapter 40, Joseph has interpreted the cupbearer's dream correctly. He asked the cupbearer to remember him. We were stored to his position in Pharaoh's court. But remember, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And verse 1 of chapter 41 tells us that two whole years went by. And at the end of those two years, Pharaoh had two dreams. And so we read about those dreams. You got seven healthy cows to get eaten up by seven unhealthy cows. You get seven ears of corn that are healthy and they get swallowed up by seven unhealthy ears of corn. Seems like a kind of strange dream and it troubled him. It seemed like this might be something bad uh, about to come. These are the ugliest cows he had ever seen in, in the dreams. And, um, and so he's troubled. And verse 8 tells us he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wives. Man, and they gathered together. He told them their dreams, and the text tells us that no one was able to help him understand what those dreams meant. No one could interpret them. And that's when, in God's perfect timing, as we talked about last week, so we won't go in, into that again, that's when, in God's perfect timing, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And he basically says to Pharaoh, Hey, I remember, I remember now that there was this young Hebrew in prison, and, and he told me the meaning of my dream and the baker's dream, and guess what? But that's exactly what happened. He had the ability to do this. And so Pharaoh hears this, and he doesn't appear to waste any time. He calls for Joseph to be brought out of the pit. The text says they, they clean him up, make him presentable so that he can be brought before Pharaoh. He comes before him, and I want you to notice what Pharaoh says. He says to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice where the direction is being, uh, the, the, the focus is being directed. It, it, all of a sudden, the spotlight, boom, is on Joseph. I have heard that you can interpret the dreams, that you are the one who can do this. I think Joseph is faced with a choice here. He's just been lifted from the pit of the dungeon, of the prison, to now standing face to face with the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt thinks he has the power, thinks Joseph has the power to interpret dreams. Joseph could say, you're right, I do. Joseph could say, you're right, I do. After all, this king doesn't even believe in the one true God. After all, it seemed like God had abandoned Joseph these past two years. And after all, wasn't it time for Joseph to, to, to enjoy a little well-earned, well-deserved respect, glory, status? Isn't it time for that? But I want you to notice Joseph's response. He quickly gives God the credit. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. That's, I mean, he just corrected Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're wrong. It's not in me. What does he say? God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. We must not miss the significance of Joseph's humility before God and faith in God. When the spotlight gets put on Joseph's ability, he quickly shifts the spotlight to God's ability. He says, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. It is not me. It's God. God is the one who can do it. God is the one who will do it. How easy, church, it would have been for him to take the credit. How easy it is, let's be honest, for us to take the credit. 
And giving God the credit gave him an opportunity to then walk by faith, trusting that God would do it again. But not him, but God. Church, these words must always be on our lips. Not me, but God. Not me, but God. When exaltation comes our way, we must quickly give God the credit, humbly desiring that he receive all the glory. Truth number two, when it seems like we deserve the glory, church, we glorify God when we acknowledge God's sovereignty. We must, in moments of earthly exaltation, acknowledge God's sovereignty. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about his complete control over all things. So Pharaoh here tells Joseph his dreams in verses 17 through 24. And then he concludes by saying this. I told it to all the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Well, the magicians of Egypt may not have been able to explain his dreams. But church, there's a sovereign God who absolutely could explain those dreams. And not only could that sovereign God explain them, that sovereign God was the one behind the dreams themselves. He was the one who who gave Pharaoh the dreams in the first place. Joseph tells Pharaoh that the two dreams have the same meaning. There's going to be seven years of plenty where there's going to be an abundance of crops. And then that's going to be followed by seven years of famine and it's going to be a really 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 bad famine not only in egypt but in other places as well but notice how joseph doesn't merely tell him the meaning of the dream notice how joseph acknowledges god's sovereignty over it all look at verse 25 joseph says god has revealed to pharaoh what he is about to do verse 28 god has shown to pharaoh what he is about to do verse 32 the thing is fixed by god and god will shortly bring it about remember joseph is standing before the king of egypt who believes in false gods And he is boldly declaring, God, my God, the one true God, is sovereign over your dreams and sovereign over the events of nature and sovereign over crop production and the lack thereof. And he knows what he is going to do in the future. And it's going to happen exactly as he has revealed it will happen. In the words of one writer, God has decided the course of history and he will do it. Joseph acknowledges that very clearly and boldly and without hesitation before the king of Pharaoh. And his acknowledgement of God's sovereignty extends beyond mere words. He's not just giving lip service to this truth that God is sovereign over all. We know that Joseph actually believes God is sovereign because he immediately describes to Pharaoh the actions that must take place in light of what God has revealed through these dreams. In verses 33 through 36, he tells Pharaoh that he needs to appoint a discerning and wise man to oversee a group of overseers to make sure grain is stored up so that when the famine comes, they will have food. Church, God's sovereignty over the future ought to move us to action as we make choices in light of God's predetermined plan. Let me give you an example for us today. God has told us that the nations will one day worship around the throne of God. And so we ought to make choices that lead to the nations hearing the gospel of Jesus so that they will believe and be saved from their sins. God's already told us it's going to happen, but that doesn't mean we sit on our hands and do nothing. We act in light of God's sovereignty. We make choices in light of God's predetermined plan. And then we are involved in what God has said will take place. Very important truth for us. We acknowledge God's sovereignty, not merely with words, but church, we acknowledge God's sovereignty with our lives. 
Do our choices reveal that we truly believe that God is sovereign and what he says is going to happen will happen? And friends, God's incredible sovereignty ought to humble us. It ought to remind us that God is the highest, not us. Therefore, God is worthy of the glory, not us. Any earthly exaltation that comes our way, that only happens under the sovereign hand of God. And so when exaltation does come our way, we must acknowledge God's sovereignty, humbly desiring that he receive all the glory. Let me give you truth number three. Church, when it seems like we deserve the glory, we glorify God when we let God do the exalting. When we let God do the exalting. At this point, Joseph has interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and told him what he needs to do to preserve life in Egypt throughout these seven years of famine that are coming. But notice what Joseph doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, and by the way, I'm the man for the job. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, and in case you didn't notice, I'm the only one who has interpreted your dreams right. You got all these wise men in your kingdom, but if you didn't notice, none of them were able to do that. So apparently, apparently I'm the guy for the job. He doesn't do that. Again, I believe that might have been tempting. This was Joseph's opportunity to rise to the top. For all he knew, Pharaoh was going to say, thanks for interpreting my dreams. Guards back to the prison for him. I mean, Pharaoh got what he needed out of Joseph. He didn't really need Joseph anymore. And at least that's what Joseph may have thought. It would have been very tempting to say, and by the way, I'm the, I'm the one for the job. He had been down long enough. This was his chance for a little taste of the glory. But once he interprets the dreams and gives Pharaoh a plan for rescuing Egypt, Joseph pretty much shuts his mouth at that point. He doesn't say anything else. He humbly lets others do the exalting. In verses 37 through 45, notice who does all the talking and the exalting. It's Pharaoh, not Joseph. Just scan your eyes through verses 37 through 45. I mean, Joseph, excuse me, Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this? Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You're going to be in command. Skip to verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land. Verse 42, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain on his neck. And he, Pharaoh, made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. It's not Joseph saying, bow the knee to me. It's the others saying, bow the knee. Thus he, Pharaoh, set him over all the land of Egypt. Verse 44, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. and Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh, verse 45, called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah. And he, that's Pharaoh, gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, which would have really sealed the deal of Joseph's place of prominence there in the kingdom. Joseph is lifted up into a very exalted position from an earthly standpoint. But notice that he didn't acquire that exalted position through self-promotion. He entrusted himself to God and God through Pharaoh exalted Joseph. And I believe Joseph here sets a great example for us of the words of Proverbs chapter 27 verse 2, which teaches us this truth regarding the way of the wise. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. In other words, don't go around praising yourself. That only makes you appear foolish. If earthly exaltation comes to you, let it be because someone else praises you, not because you're going around singing your own praises. 
So when exaltation comes our way, we must let God do the exalting. If he wills, humbly desiring that he receive all the glory. Truth number four, church, is this. When it seems like we deserve the glory, we glorify God when we testify to God's faithfulness. We've got to, in those moments of of earthly exaltation, we've got to see that as an opportunity to testify to the faithfulness of God. Not sing our own praises, not make a name for ourselves, but direct attention to God by testifying of his faithfulness. In verse 46, we're told that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so if we do our math, we learn that 13 years has passed since he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And we're then told in verses 47 through 49 that Joseph then faithfully carries out his plan as what God said would happen actually did happen. There were seven years of abundance. And during that time, Joseph wisely stored up all the grain. He didn't get distracted by his fame. He knew the task that he had been called to do and he did it well. And verses 50 through 52 tell us that not only were the crops fruitful during those seven years of abundance, Joseph was fruitful as well. He had two sons with his wife. And what we see in the names Joseph gives his two sons is that his position of power has not gone to his head. Even though he is living in a pagan nation worshiping that, that worships false gods, Joseph gives his two sons names that reveal that Joseph has not forgotten God. He has not forgotten who he is, the family that he is attached to, He has not forgotten the God that he worships and who God is and what God is doing. We see this first in the fact that he gives his two sons Hebrew names. If you notice, Pharaoh had given Joseph an Egyptian name and then Pharaoh had given Joseph an Egyptian wife. But Joseph knew that he belonged to the lineage of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he worshiped the God of his people, the one true God, the God who had been faithful to him through those 13 years of trials. And he used the birth of his sons to testify to God's faithfulness that he hadn't forgotten about God, even by the fact that he gave them Hebrew names. But then we can take it a step further and see what those names actually were, what they meant. His first son, he named Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word that means making to forget. And so with his son, his first son, he was testifying to God's faithfulness and helping him move past all the hardships he had experienced from his brothers. It doesn't mean he literally had forgotten them. Remember, he's given them Hebrew names. He's not forsaking his heritage. But it just means that he has moved past. He's not holding that grudge anymore. God has made me move past that. Forget all of that that had happened to me, that my, that my brothers, that pain that my brothers caused in my life. And then his second nun, his, uh, son, not nun, son, he named Ephraim, which sounds like the Hebrew word that means making fruitful, making fruitful. And with this son, the text tells us he was testifying to God's faithfulness to him in the land of Egypt. He said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He doesn't deny the fact that it has been hard those 13 years, the land of my affliction. But at the same time, he acknowledges that God has been with him and God has made him fruitful in spite of the difficulty that Egypt has brought into his life. His naming of each son was actually an act of worship to God. In the middle of his season of exaltation, where he could have become very self-centered and self-focused, even in the naming of his children, he gave the glory to God. Now, every time Joseph called his son's names, hey, Manasseh, stop hitting your brother Ephraim, right? Every time he called their names, hey, 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 boys, Manasseh, Ephraim, it's time for dinner. 
he would be reminded of the faithfulness of his God. Church, regardless of our circumstances, it is always the right time to testify to God's faithfulness. We saw Joseph testify to God's faithfulness in the pit of prison. And now we see him testify to God's uh, faithfulness when he is second in command of Egypt. It's always the right time to testify to God's faithfulness. When exaltation comes our way, we must be quick to testify to God's faithfulness, humbly desiring that he receive all the glory. Let me share with you a fifth way. A fifth way that we can stay humble before the Lord in moments of exaltation church when it seems like we deserve the glory. We glorify God when we look ahead to a better exaltation. When we look ahead to a better exaltation. This is a truth we learn when we look at the passage in its broader context. Remember I told you that some of this is going to come from specifically the life of Joseph and the choices that Joseph makes. But some of this is going to come as we kind of step back and look at the bigger picture of what God is doing. And what we see in Joseph's life really is a snapshot of what life is like for all of God's people. See, the truth of the matter is that the journey of God's people is one of trials and tribulations leading to exaltation, which we don't deserve. The journey of God's people is one of trials and tribulations leading to a future exaltation that we don't deserve. When Joseph refers to God making him fruitful in the land of affliction, church, it's a foreshadowing of the nation of Israel living in the land of Egypt 400 years later. We've said this before, but remember, the, the, the people of Israel having just come out of uh, slavery in Egypt are the original uh, audience of, of Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis as they're reading this. And so when they hear, when they read Joseph, that Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, they would have said, Amen, brother. This is certainly a land of affliction. Egypt has been a land of affliction for us, and yet God has made us fruitful. If we turn to the first chapter of Exodus, we find that the people of Israel were greatly afflicted in the land of Egypt, but God was faithful to them. They were fruitful and multiplied into a great nation, and eventually God delivered them from their affliction and exalted them uh, to the position uh, of a great kingdom under the reigns of David and Solomon. But Throughout that process of God delivering them and then exalting them, God was always very quick to remind them, you don't deserve this. He was quick to remind them to be on guard against the temptation, to look at themselves and think that somehow they had earned this position of exaltation. He was quick to remind them that their deliverance and exaltation were acts of his grace. And then we can turn to God's description of his church in the New Testament. Of us Christians, of us who belong to God through faith in Jesus. Let me remind you of some words of the New Testament about you and me as followers of Christ. Jesus said that in this life we would face many tribulations. Paul said that we would suffer as God's children. Peter said that we would live as exiles on this earth. You see, we are not promised an earthly exaltation. If you walk away from the, the story of Joseph, chapter 41, thinking, well, if I just wait a little bit longer, I'm gonna, God's going to lift me up to some position of fame here on this earth. That's not the point. It happened for Joseph. There's no promise that that's going to happen for us. Not in this life. We may find ourselves in an exalted position in the eyes of the world, or we might not. But either way, church, either way, we look ahead to a far better exaltation than any found here on this earth. Because one day Christ is going to return and he's going to take us to the place that he has prepared for us. One day we're going to be transformed to look like Jesus. One day we will serve, God's word says, as a kingdom and priest to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Yes, Jesus said that we would face tribulations in this world. But you know what he also said? Take heart. 
I have overcome the world. Yes, Paul said that we would suffer as God's children. But do you know what else he said? He said the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yes, Peter said that we are exiles in this world. But do you know what he also said in that same letter? He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What was Peter talking about? Well, a couple of verses later, he says this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Church, one of the ways that we can stay humble in moments of earthly exaltation is by remembering that there is a far better exaltation that is coming our way. Any earthly recognition is temporary and it's really nothing compared to what is coming for those who belong to God. And that future exaltation, church, is ours only because God gives us a free gift. We've done nothing to deserve it. So, church, as we look ahead to that better exaltation, I think it does two things. One, it helps us hold loosely any recognition that we would receive here on this earth. It makes us take those trophies and those words of praise and maybe say thank you, but then say, you know what? That's nothing compared to what God's going to give me one day. Keeps us from walking around bragging about it, right? And on that same train of thought, when we think about the exaltation that is coming one day, when we see our Savior face to face, it humbles us because we realize we are unworthy of that exaltation that's coming one day. We realize we don't deserve any of the good gifts of God towards us. So when exaltation comes our way, church, we must look ahead to a better exaltation, humbly desiring that God receive the glory. But there's one more that I want to share with you. That's my favorite one of all, because church, this gets us to Jesus. This gets us to Jesus. Number six, truth number six, when it seems like we deserve the glory, we glorify God, church. When we remember our place as servants of Jesus, the exalted king of the nations. We glorify God in those moments of exaltation when we remember that we are but servants of Jesus and that he is the true king of the nations. Again, we have to see how chapter 41 pushes us to look beyond chapter 41 to a better Joseph. Notice how this passage ends in verses 53 to 54. We learn that the seven years of plenty came to an end. And then just like God said, the seven years of famine began. The famine reached all the lands, but guess what? There was bread in Egypt. The people cried to Pharaoh for bread, the text says. And notice what Pharaoh says. He says, go to Joseph and do what he says. And then verses 56 and 57, I want you to notice the repetition of this phrase, all the land or all the earth. Do you see that there? So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Church, there is far more going on here than meets the eye. We see some partial fulfillments of God's promises, right? We see a partial fulfillment of God's promise to bless those who bless Abraham. And the fact that Egypt is now being blessed because they have blessed Joseph, Abraham's great grandson. We see a partial fulfillment of his promise to bless the nations through Abraham as the nations are rescued through this descendant of Abraham. We also see a hint that Joseph may once again see his family, right? Because we're told that 
all the other lands are also coming to Egypt. And so it's a foreshadowing of God's plan to preserve the family line. I don't want to get to add too much in the story, but to preserve the family line that we know is going to lead to none other than the promised deliverer, Jesus, the Messiah. And then also we get here in these final verses an incredible picture of this promised deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make sure you pay close attention to the picture that is painted for us in these final verses. This is really easy to read over those last few verses. But I want you to notice the picture that's being painted. Put this in your mind. Joseph is being lifted up to this place of prominence and all the earth is gathering to Joseph to be saved by submitting to him in obedience. Right? Pharaoh says, go to Joseph and do what he says. Uh, Joseph lifted up. All the earth coming to him to be rescued by submitting to him in obedience. Now, with that picture in mind, I want you to listen to these words of Jesus from John chapter 12. Jesus has just been told that some Greeks, some Gentiles, some people from the nations want to see him. His disciples say, there's these there's these foreigners that they, they want to they want to come see you, Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, that's Jesus talk for it's time for me to die. It's time for me to go to the cross and die. And then Jesus goes on to say this in that same passage. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, the the, the text there tells us that Jesus was talking about his death, that he would be lifted up on the cross. And the nations would be saved. If you think about it in one sense, that moment of being lifted up for Jesus was not a moment of exaltation, was it? It was... The greatest moment of humiliation that the world has ever known. And yet, in God's sovereignty, that moment of being lifted up in humiliation resulted in Jesus being lifted up in exaltation to the throne of heaven where he will reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords with people from every nation, tribe, language, and people group around his throne, worshiping him as the Savior and submitting to him as the King. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Do you see the picture that in the story of Joseph is being painted for us? Do You see what that picture is pointing us towards It's pointing us towards the crucifixion of Jesus and the exaltation of the resurrected Jesus who through his being lifted up on the cross and then being lifted up and exalted to the throne in heaven draws all nations to himself to be saved. Church, Joseph is not the king of the nations and neither are we. Jesus is the savior king of the nations. So the question is this, are we drawing to him? Are we drawing to him in humble obedience, even in those moments where we experience some earthly exaltation? Are we remembering that he is the one who deserves all the glory? Are we submitting our lives to his lordship? Are we trusting in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins? Are we doing what he says, which is to believe in him? If you've never believed in Jesus, then, then please hear me. He is the savior king. 
Joseph is merely a, a small picture of that. But Christ is the exalted king who has done everything necessary to rescue you and me and anyone from any nation who would come before him and submit to his authority to rescue us from our sins. And so if you haven't trusted in him, will you do so today? Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And then when we have church, we live for the glory of Christ. When exaltation comes our way, we must remember our place as servants of Jesus, who is the rightful king of the nations, humbly desiring that he would receive all the glory. Joseph didn't know it, that his exaltation really wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. Church, it's still about Jesus. It always has been and always will be. And so far be it from us to take moments of earthly exaltation and try to steal the glory from him. When glory seems deserved and we're tempted to make a name for ourselves, may we remember that there is only one who deserves the glory. He is Jesus, Savior and King of the nations. May we be humble before him. Would you pray with me? God. Would you rip out of our hearts any shred of pride? As we see Jesus humbly going to the cross. Powerfully rising from the dead and deservedly reigning as the King of heaven and earth. God, if you allow in your sovereignty any earthly exaltation to come our way, may we stay humble and may we direct all the attention to you. And whether that happens or not, Lord, it really doesn't matter. Because one day, everyone who is in Christ is going to experience that exaltation that we absolutely don't deserve. So we get to enjoy your presence for all of eternity. Father, may we testify of your faithfulness. May we point others to your goodness. And may we live for the praise of your glory always in every season of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.